This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 474 for September 16th, 2015. We're brought to you this week by Red Hat. Welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. I'm senior contributor Glenn Fleischman, and last week was... Berserk. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Isn't that so? Executive editor of Macworld, Susie Oaks. A little bit, yeah. I'm pretty oh, tired. My gosh, you, <laughs> how many articles did you edit last week? Like forty? Oh, a lot. Yeah. 50. Apple doesn't. I mean, so we come off summer. Like we were talking all summer, but it wasn't really a slow summer. Usually, summer settles into doldrums, and people were shipping stuff left and right, and Microsoft's pushing stuff out, and we got public betas of Apple systems and Google. Re- and then it's like, all right, well, now we're ready for this Apple event. And then Apple, like, here, we've got shovels. We've got a dumpster. Back up. Back up. Like, oh, beep, my. beep, beep. Yeah, oh, all the stuff. It yeah. was a fun event. It was tiring. It was everything. I mean, I, saw, I live blogged it, and then I saw all the things, and I, I attempted to shoot some video that went kind of poorly. And then I had to write up, like, all these three things. So, But the funny thing was that after you live blog a thing like that for – two hours and 20 minutes, I think it clocked in at, uh, I was like, I got to watch it all again. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's hard to, to, to really like absorb it. It was like in through one year, like out through my fingers and then, and then it was gone and they were talking about something else. So yeah, you were there live and in person watching, um, from the, uh, it's, I, I was, I heard just a few days ago, I didn't realize that Apple had like taken over the space for weeks ahead of time. Yeah. That's yeah, hilarious. When, when it was rumored, I was like, well, this is be kind of early for them to be setting up. Right. I mean, cause other events, that I've seen, um, sometimes they do it at Yerba Buena, which is like a theater, and it's all ready set up, and they just have to, you know, they make a stage, and they do all their rehearsals, and they can put in some mood lighting or whatever, but it's not like this, they they kind of built a new theater inside the Bill Graham. So it had like a, a separate stage that was, you know, not the regular stage that, you know, big bands play on. Um, the room had been divided. There were um, two hands-on areas. There was off to the left, there was an Apple TV one, which was like a bunch of different like little fake living rooms set up with Apple TVs in them. And you'd go see the demos on the various things. Um, and then on the right side was kind of like a thing that sort of looked like an Apple store that had, you know, the big tables with the iPhones and the iPads and the new Apple Watch bands and just everything you could want. So I also heard there were, um, I mean, at typical Apple events like this, uh, it's mostly press and analysts and some VIPs. I heard that there were, someone said, you know, there might've been 1500 people there and a thousand were Apple employees. Is that jive with what you saw in person? That's different. When I got there, there was this huge line outside and I was like, oh great, that's the line I'm going to have to stand in. But then that was the employee line. So they were, they did bring in a ton of employees and the whole like upper tier of the theater was all Apple employees. So that Mm -hmm. was kind of cool. I went to a T-Mobile event in Seattle last year where they brought like thousands of their employees and they were all like dressed alike and they were acting like it was a rock concert and just screaming and like wooing and stomping their feet. And like that got really obnoxious really fast. So the Apple <laughs> employees were were very well behaved. <laughs> but it brings a different energy to it. I, I mean, I see people on Twitter while the live event's going on saying, oh, the reporters, why are you applauding? And I'm like, it's not just reporters. No, there's always, yeah. I was like, there's always some VIPs. And then I find out, no, it's not like uh, Al Gore and a hundred other people. I mean, because I've been at ones where they, they limit the number of non-press analysts because they're trying to squeeze as many of us in as yeah. possible. 
Uh, but I was like, no, the energy in the room this time is, <laughs> I found out later, I was like, no, it's just yeah. full of Apple It felt employees. more like the WWC keynote, which oh, is yeah. full of like paying customers and, you know, Apple like true believers, developers. So that was always the most fun Apple event for me because there was like a, you know, a sense of energy in the air that wasn't at any of the other events um, outside of Macworld Expo when uh, Apple used to do keynotes there. So so that was cool. Yeah, the clapping thing is really funny. So you're you're typing, you're taking notes, like you're live blogging. Even if you're not live blogging, you're pre-writing what you're going to write, you know, later and so you can get it in the hands-on area and just fill in the blanks and have your your thing up fast and be able to go to lunch. So um <laughs> but yeah, the, all the analysts are 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 clapping and the the VIPs are clapping and I was, you know, just a few rows behind like all the Apple execs and obviously they're clapping. So it's funny like you have to sort of it, it's easy to just sort of catch yourself like if if you stop typing for a second and everyone's clapping like a couple oh times God. I'd like put my hands together and be like no no don't clap don't You're clap the and Supreme then Court at this you feel kind of dirty about it you you're can't. like oh I just clapped I'm so sorry <laughs> like I didn't mean to yeah it's but a, yeah it's church it's church and state uh, or something but um, <laughs> yeah. well, so last week while you were uh, editing and writing like mad uh, John Moltz and I went over the uh, what had happened uh, on the ninth itself. And so we went through the uh, Apple TV announcement, the phone announcement, the uh, brief watch OS updates, the iPad Pro. Uh, did I hit everything? Oh my god! The kitchen gosh, sink, so the car. Yeah, yeah. That's right. The new car. The not yet. Next time. We, the new car. The car they will come out. It'll rotate that. around. It's going to be exciting. Uh, and the, later in the show, we've got uh, Brianna Wu, the head of development at Giant Space Cat, is going to talk to us uh, about uh, from the game dev standpoint about Apple TV, but I thought we'd start with um, something that's really uh, you know right on the edge here is iOS nine. As we record this, iOS nine is not yet out. It will be out at some point on uh, presumably by the time people are listening to this, their phones will have been pushed. Uh, I don't remember what time of day Sometime iOS updates go out. It's usually at like ten or noon. Pacific, or I forget. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes it gets delayed, um, but this one shouldn't be. And I mean, I've been running iOS nine on my on a iPad. For, for several weeks, the public betas only. I didn't want to put in dev betas. I installed a week ago the um, the most recent. I think I updated uh, once uh, on my iPhone, and it's been incredibly solid. Yeah. Uh, and um, so people, you know, so our recommendation, iOS 9, should you upgrade to iOS 9 when it comes out? Yes, I think so. Um, I've been also been running the public beta. I put it on my everyday carry phone, like, from day one, which, you know, you're not supposed to do. But like the very first public beta, I saw a few crashes, and then since then yeah. it's been it's been fine. Like after the second public beta to to today, it's I have no problems whatsoever. Um, it actually gives you some space back, which is nice. Um, I know most... when we went to iOS eight, people were like, "Oh, the update's so big," and so all the things that people are are kind of wary about. Um, I, I haven't seen as being an issue in iOS 9. And it you know, doesn't change that much. It's not like, oh, new icons, new colors, everything looks different. Like, this is weird. Like, it's going to look pretty much the same. It's going to have um, some fun new features, the new spotlight screen I really like. And it's so, the little back so button good. that pops up is handy. Yeah, those things. Um, I mean, the little things are really nice. Content blocking extensions, which we're we'll oh, talking a yeah, lot more about. Oh, yeah, that's going to be huge. Uh, split screen if you have the right equipment. But, they, uh, you know, I, I don't have any older iOS devices anymore. Everything I have is relatively new. I've retired them or we're not using them actively. I, I wonder if Macworld would commission an article where people where it would look at timing. Because remember, one of the early rumors was iOS 9 was going to be optimized for the oldest devices that could run oh, it. Yeah, we should but do that. Almost by, like, I think it wasn't intentional. It wasn't, oh, yeah, we're going to make 
make uh, old devices faster. It was more like the new approach they were taking would load assets for every device. So if you had a new one, it's going to be just as useful to you as an older one. So I've got an iPhone you know, 5S, which they're still selling. And it will be actually faster in 9 than 8 because it's not going to try to push stuff to it or have modules that are inapplicable. So my question will be like, will iPhone 4S, will that suddenly go from being an iOS 8 slog to being, you know, iOS 9 feeling like a, not a new phone, but not like a terrible old one again? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be curious. I mean, I know benchmarking older devices is weird, but it's still because the 5S is on the market, you know, and people have 4Ss in the tens of millions, I think, yeah, based just on the sales. selling that iPad too, like... A week ago, or yeah, something. I know what it feels like. So, right, so I mean, there are people. There, I assume you know, based on the numbers out there, we think there are there's probably north of 700 million iOS devices in use, and so a good couple hundred million of them are, are going to be on the older end of iOS uh, eight and still active for you know iPads will be active for years to come. So I would be curious. Um, I feel like uh, on even on my iPhone six, iOS nine is better. It's slightly snappier. Um, and some things that I think used to hold it up, there was some weird background stuff where I'd wait, you'd pull down spotlight, used to break all the time in iOS 8. Uh, that seems to have gone away. I feel like it's working now. So maybe they fixed some long-running things that we didn't even know were going on. Uh, so our advice, we have so, so we've got a few different pieces of advice on Macworld.com about upgrading. One of them is always to back up. Please back yes. up. Yeah, you knew we would say that, and surprise, we're saying it. You should back up. But, I mean, like, you can back up different ways. Um, if you back up to iTunes, it's a lot faster, and it has that little um, encrypt this backup checkbox. And if you check that, it will remember your logins and passwords. So when you go so nice. and restore your phone to the backup, um, you won't have to log into everything again. And that's a big time saver. So that's that's a good thing to have. It's going to want to download all the apps on your phone to your computer. That's fine. I mean, I think you can like delete them again. It's not a big deal. Um, it's useful because sometimes you try to do that update. I mean, I've had very good luck in the last couple of years with not having to re-wipe my phone over and over again. But there was a point where you do an update, and if it didn't go right, you're stuck with the restore. And then if you didn't have a latest backup, you're going to lose some settings and changes. You don't lose that much because almost everything is cloud um, synced or, you know, IMAP server for mail, whatever, but it's still a hassle. You're like, oh, that app wasn't installed and you have to reinstall it or you have to reconfigure it. So having a up-to-date iTunes encrypted backup is like, it's that insurance that means I'm not going to have to waste five hours or 10 hours after there's a failed backup in the less than 1%. Yeah. I mean, I may only be like 0.01% of the time this happens now. It used to be, I would say more like a couple percent based on uh, reader feedback. Yeah, you would like be restoring and it would just kind of hang at some point and then you're like, okay, what do I do? And so, yeah, I would say like in a recovery mode and it's it's once you had that backup, like no matter what happens during the update, if there's some weird cough, if your internet goes down, like anything bizarre that happens, like you can just restore to the backup and start over. It is weird. This is the first time I can think of just saying like, yeah, just update to the new iOS. Don't wait. It's cool. I don't, I don't ever (laughs) remember ever saying that before. Yeah. Well, and so you don't, you still don't have to update like day one. And that's not because the OS isn't, you know, worthy of your phone. It's because the servers are going to get hammered and there might just be, you might just have to wait for forever. Um, it might be kind of slow and annoying. So you might want to wait a couple of days just if you want it to be a very smooth process or, you know, if, if, if you live in somewhere with the, the time zone and you're not, you know, downloading it during prime time or whatever. I don't know. But if the for the first 12 hours or so, I would assume that Apple is going to be very hammered and 
So you might want to set that out just in the interest of time. But yeah. don't worry that you have to wait till like 9.0.1 because this is a very stable OS and I've had no problems with it at all. Well, I have a little tip too, which is, uh, as you know, iOS, if you download uh, an update, whether it's a full system update or a micro update, um, from the device itself, it uses a different process than if you use iTunes. But if it's a heavy server usage day, if you start on your iPhone or iPad and you start the download and it gets interrupted, sometimes it loses the entire download. It doesn't really have a cache state for interruptions mm, as far as okay. I've seen. Maybe that's been fixed. If you use iTunes, it'll just download the whole firmware file and it's often larger. I don't know for a full system update if it's larger or not. For incremental updates, we now know it's, you know, it could be 150 megs if you do it in phone or in iPad versus the whole multi gigabyte file if you do it in iTunes. But if you're determined to do it, uh, plug it in to iTunes, uh, let it start the download, then you can unplug it. It'll keep doing the download. And if it gets delayed, it'll eventually get finished. You plug back in and you do the update uh, that way and you won't lose the download time if that's what you're concerned about. Yeah, and with iOS 8, I remember everyone freaking out because I think the if you tried to upload over the air, it said it needed like somewhere like five to eight gigs of oh, free yeah. space and no one had that many gigs. So it doesn't, Actually, it's not like that the OS is taking up that many gigs. It's just that's how much it needs to like write everything and move stuff around and do everything it has to do. It has to have kind of a buffer. Um, but if you down if you up, download and install um, with iTunes, you, it, you can have a lot less free space. Yeah, that's your, right. So you have to cache it. It'll actually off. like yeah. Yeah, copy. It just it, does what it has to do. Yeah, because then you have a revert. I think that's when you get to the revert position thing is if there's uh, when you're doing it on the phone, it's basically making a second operating system available to boot. And until it's fully ready, it doesn't delete the original um, OS, I think. Mm -hmm. And in iTunes, I don't think it needs that same backup because it knows you've got the uh, it can pull off the one file and install the second because it's got an active connection. Um, hey, so uh, new two factor authentication. Uh, this is something, you know, it's one of the issues I follow closely and Apple announced weeks ago or months ago they were moving from what they called two-step verification to two-factor authentication and it's kind of the same thing except it's now deeply embedded and and just and I've been working on this book which I will tell people about at some point it's, uh, it's a book a ebook on uh, networking privacy and security that'll be out in a couple weeks uh, and in uh, going through I don't have the new version enabled yet they Apple said they would invite people to it uh, you know for whatever, criteria they had among users who were beta testing. I did not get an invite, asked Apple, and they don't have a way to push me into that queue, unfortunately. So I'm still, I've been using the old two-step, and man, is it erratic. I didn't realize how different it presents itself everywhere. The new two-factor system is built uh, right into El Capitan and nine, uh, iOS 9, and so it's going to be uh, much more fluid, and it removes the step. Everything should be simpler you should have to fuss with it less and therefore they hope more people will adopt it. But it also just won't be as funky. I mean, sometimes I'm logging into a thing and it's like, send this device and then my phone pops up with something and then I have to tap it into like a web app at an, you know, an Apple site. I'm like, this is not a good experience right now. Uh, so I'm waiting for that to happen. And um, so I'm not sure if that will be enabled with iOS 9's release and everyone with two-step suddenly gets two-factor uh, authentication or if they'll email it out, or they're waiting for El Capitan. Um, the old system still works, but watch for that change. Uh, the, the big thing will be, you'll log in, it'll um, show you information, the code you need on every device simultaneously that you have registered with your Apple ID, and then it'll be a six-digit code instead of a four-digit code, and that's the big thing. 
Um, the other thing is if you want to use a text message, that's still an option, but it can also speak to you. It is automatic voice uh, spoken call to read you a code, which is nice for people who don't have SMS at the number they want to use. But uh, watch for that. I'd also say check that you have all your iCloud pass passwords handy before you do the update because you will need to enter those. After you reboot, all of a sudden I have run into the situation where I'm somewhere, I install an update, ask me for my iCloud password. I have one password on the phone. I don't remember the password because I use oh. one password and I'm not near a device that has it. So I have to go home to get it. I've had to type it in. I have like a I don't know, 15-character, totally random password. I've memorized it. I've had to type it in the last few days so many times. It's ridiculous, and I now have it in my head, so I can type it in. But uh, make sure you have it for this one time written down. That's a handy, very good tip. Uh, if you wind up updating. And then uh, once you update, just eat that piece of paper. Exactly. It's delicious. Just write gobble it, on, it right down. Write, write it on chewing gum in edible ink, <laughs> and you're all set. Uh, other thing that we wanted to mention is that um, so whatever any company is developing software, they have a you know, .0 release is going to come out on day whatever. Before the .0 release comes out, they are already working on the .1 or .0.1 release. They know there's stuff they can't get into the shipping version. This is just how development works. So uh, the the 9.0 feature set and whatever was fixed a few weeks ago, and they're just refining that down. 9.1, not 9.0.1. 9.1 is already not just in testing as we knew it would be. Or I thought it would be a 9.0.1. Uh, it's already in public beta. Yes. And our phones are all like, hey, you got, I mean, I've, like, if you're opted oh, into man, the public beta. That, that window, it comes up every time I touch my phone. And I I'm know. still like writing about iOS 9. So I actually don't want to up to go to iOS 9.1 yet in case it changes something. And then my writings about iOS 9 prove to be inaccurate. So yeah, that, that is like freaking me out, man. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, why would they shouldn't be pushing it this early? I don't think. I mean, until 9.0 ships, they shouldn't push it. And there should be a way. So you can't, if, you, if you're already opted into the public beta, you can't suddenly opt out either uh i mean i think you can i think you can opt out but i don't know what happens to your phone if you're using the public beta but you've opted out is it then anyway so uh i, I think we're just it. stuck with it i installed it on the phone because <laughs> okay, i'm working good. a little bit further ahead and i've, I've got my ipad uh running 9.0 and uh, one of the reasons i installed it is i use the swipe uh alternate keyboard which basically does not work with 9.0 and it works fine with 9.1 so i um i decided i would put it in see if there's anything worthwhile so we will be talking a lot more about um, iOS 9 in the weeks to come. But, uh, you know, be prepared. Um, we'll have piles of articles out at Macworld.com. It's got a taco emoji. Yeah. And oh, wait, 9.1. Right? 9.1 has, uh, has all the new emojis. It didn't make it into 9.0. Yeah. We'll have all the new stuff, that it, uh, all the Unicode changes. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody else that people need to know about before they go. I mean, content blockers, we're going to talk a lot about them. We've already talked a fair amount. I'll have an article out uh, after... Uh, iOS 9 ships about how to. I'm testing, I think I have seven betas installed <laughs> nice. now. A couple I'm really excited about. I really, I mean, so I wrote, I've written uh, that piece for you a couple weeks ago now about like what to expect from content blockers with some early betas. And it was kind of like, here's what they can do. And um, here's a great thing. Discover this, friend of mine on Twitter. I was complaining about Washington Post is now one of the first sites. It will throw up a thing that says, hey, you have an ad blocker installed. You need to turn that off. Or I think it says you have to give us your email address and sign up for a list if you want to read here, which is interesting. Uh, and they, and uh, a couple people I know are like, oh, I'm using content blocking filters. I just entered the ID for the box. So because content blockers are allowed to suppress cascading style sheets, CSS, every element on a page that like a popover box uh, I shouldn't say every element, but things like popover boxes and other kinds of things that are like that look like objects, they typically have a unique ID name in CSS. 
you can specify that in some content blockers. You can say add and then give the box name and, it, and even a pattern. And so anything the Washington Post puts to throw over the page, you can prevent that from loading. It'll just be a no display tag and it won't show up. <laughs> so there's going to be some cat and mouse going on. Um, but the diversity stuff, just among these seven I'm testing, the kinds of settings are like one has, you know, porn filter, but it's they can't filter all porn because it's not content-based filtering, but they have a list of like 20 major porn sites. And so if you want to disable it, uh, even by accident, I don't know how you accidentally go to a porn site. I mean, there are, there are pop-unders and other crap that happens. But if you want to make sure that someone using your device uh, can't access these major porn sites. You flip that on. Another has, you know, some of them are you whitelist in so that uh, let's say your favorite site, Macworld.com, you never want to block anything, Susie. Why would you ever block anything from Macworld.com? I wouldn't. I, I actually have it whitelisted right now. Yeah, so you can add it. There's these content filters. Some of them, some of the content blocking apps will let you uh, specifically opt sites out. So that will be interesting too. And I wonder if there'll be, uh, the next step would be, would some site, there'd be lists of like, okay, these are content sites that are, you know, editorial in nature. And here's a list you can load. Here's like 500 sites that we've a very selective set of blocks. So instead of blocking everything, we're only blocking uh, trackers and autoplay video and blah, as opposed to all advertising. So that will be interesting how that, how that shakes out too. That would be really handy. I have Ghostry running on Safari right now, and it'll give me a list of all the trackers running on a page, and I can block them selectively. And it has like a very, very rudimentary description for each one. But it's hard to know. Like if you're on a site and there's an annoying ad, uh, audio autoplay video in the sidebar, because that site is just mean. Um, I don't know who you're talking about. I don't know who I'm talking about either. Um, it's it, it, You go up to the Ghostry thing, and it, there's, you know, Items like Blue Kai, Double Verify, Flights, you know, Crux Digital, and I don't know what all these things do. So, so then, yeah, the user's, I think, impulse is just to block it all, just block everything. So if, um, if some of these have better tools to kind of explain to you what you're blocking and how to block the things that you want blocked without, you know, just blanket blocking, that might be handy. I, th I think so. It's going to be a brave new world out there. Um, speaking of brave new worlds, brave old worlds, let's take a break to talk about our sponsor this week, Red Hat, and then we'll be back with Brianna Wu from Giant Space Cat. So uh, thanks to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. Uh, you know, it may not be news that supported open source is now widely accepted at the highest levels of enterprise computing. Hey, I knew about it, but I've had servers running in, in data centers for years. I've run Red Hat Enterprise Linux at different points in my uh, my history. And uh, the, the thing is, I am not alone. And in fact, I'm a tiny, tiny, tiny operator of Linux systems. And so you might be surprised to find out that Red Hat isn't, you know, run just by people by me, uh, but it's run, in fact, uh, at the highest levels of government. Every executive department in the U.S. federal government, for instance, every airline, telecom giant, every healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, they're all running Red Hat. The New York Stock Exchange, every commercial bank in the Fortune 500, in fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 use Red Hat for everything from the critical to the routine. Red Hat is the hidden part of the internet. It's the stuff that helps run a lot of what we use every day, and most people don't realize it because they kind of snuck in, they got comfortable, they got behind there, and they transformed the technology business by providing supported open source software. They're the ones who test and verify and deploy 
software that you can use and rely on with all the benefits of open source collaboration behind it. Sometimes the most disruptive technology is the stuff no one notices at first. And if you want to find out more about how that works, you can figure out how Red Hat is quietly redefining enterprise technology. Just visit redhat.com. And thanks for being our sponsor this week. Joining us to talk about Apple TV is Brianna Wu, the head of development at Giant Space Cat, the makers of Revolution 60, an excellent interactive video game, and the co-host of Relay FM podcast, Rocket and Isometric. Brianna, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. It is a pleasure to have an actual game developer to talk about the game <laughs> development components of Apple TV because we are not game developers and uh, a lot of stuff's floating out there. Um, and uh, you talk about this in some depth on, and I expect you'll be talking about it for times to come uh, on your isometric uh, gaming podcast. But uh, for people who are more, you know, I'm a I'm a casual gamer. I don't have any I don't own any consoles. I never have owned a console. I've never owned a never? handheld. Never. Um, wow. I know. I'm Freak. just. I, I used to be, I'm well, good. I was a PC gamer. I was a Mac gamer, and I got so obsessed in college and probably almost flunked out one term because of playing some game that I had to, I've had to tamp down. I have to be a casual gamer. Um, so I'm intrigued by the Apple TV as being a kind of Wii-like, but it's got all kinds of limitations. Now, as a game developer, do you look at it and say, yay, a new platform to colonize, or boo, more work for me without, with an unknown kind of return at the end? Well, um, you, before I answer that, Glenn, let me um, back up for just a second and yeah. kind of give you some of my assumptions that I'm, I'm bringing into this conversation. So, you know, when, when iOS first came out, I was incredibly psyched about it at first. Like, you remember this era, mm -hmm. 2008, 2009, you know, when games first started coming to the platform. Yeah, you know, this is when I launched my company, Giant Space Cat. Um, it was right after Unreal... Um, announced that they were going to start supporting iOS. And, you know, the future I foresaw was one where, you know, we were gaming all the time on our mobile devices. Um, what I've begun to get very frustrated about in the market is how, you know, I would call iOS games pleasant distractions. <laughs> and, and, and what I mean by that is, um, you know, if I'm playing a game on PlayStation or Xbox or you know, even a more casual um, system like the Nintendo 3DS, there's a certain amount of refinement of the mechanics and playtesting experience to you know, really justify that, that price tag. And what I think we've consistently seen because of the kind of depressed pricing of iOS yeah. is um, kind of a race to the bottom. Like how quickly can you put out this um, you know, easily monetizable, simple gameplay that's addictive, but, you know, it's ultimately junk food, you know? Um, so that, that frustration is part of what I'm bringing into this conversation. So, you know, if you saw Apple, you know, bringing Apple TV out during the keynote, you know, they had Harmonix, which is a Boston game dev studio, come out and show their new game which is, it's a very simple game that didn't cost much money to develop, right? Like you're swiping right, left, and center and hitting a button to kind of swing a bat on some beats. That is exactly what I mean by, you know, pleasant distractions. Mm -hmm. So when I look at Apple TV, it looks like a continuation of that strategy for, for many, many reasons. Uh, you know, the first is the controller, 
which, you know, Susie, we were talking about this kind of privately on Twitter, where it looks like it's an excellent uh, remote control for watching television, but it really looks like an afterthought for games. I mean, do you want to expand on that at all? Well, it, I mean, it sort of depends on what kind of games you're playing. So some uh-huh. motion games, like, um, the, you know, like the the Harmonix one, they showed the guy just you know, swinging his arm kind of in time right. to the music. And that would seem pretty natural. But if you're going to play something really involved, like more of a console game where you're sitting down, you're playing this game for a couple of hours, um, and you, you know, you're controlling a camera and you're shooting and everything, you're probably going to want more of a gamepad, and it's going to support the MFI gamepads, but, I mean, you know, they don't come with. Well, I should point right. to the MFI program, right? That's Apple's certification program, and there are controllers out already that are, like I guess these are all Bluetooth 4 enabled, and uh, people aren't uh, jumping up and down about the controllers on the market. So one wonders, like, is there going to be a market for new uh, you know, controllers that because the Apple TV offers a different experience, but that's still, that's the interface part, right? That's There could be an active add-on market for controllers designed to work with new kinds of games that come to the Apple TV. Um, right now, those controllers are designed for the iPad, so like you'd, right. you know, you'd have to kind of prop up your iPad and sit there playing with the controller, and that just, I mean, I guess people could do that, but that seems like a smaller market than um, you have this thing that you bought for your TV, it plays games anyway. I also don't have any modern consoles, I've, I've owned them before, but I don't have any right now. And I keep thinking about like, oh, I should buy a PlayStation. I should buy an Xbox or something. But if I got the Apple TV, it might be kind of good enough for now. But I would probably be more likely to buy, a, you know, an aftermarket controller for that just because it's more of like a, you know, a sitting on the couch gaming kind of experience where it just wouldn't really occur to me to buy a fancy controller to play with my iPad. You know, I think sometimes when we talk about this issue, we tend to um, we tend to have more of a consumer focus. I mean, it makes sense, right? Like you want a real controller, you go out and spend twenty dollars on a controller. What I think people don't really understand is the role gameplay testing takes into this equation. Mm. So, like, we're about to ship Revolution sixty for PC. One of our core um, gameplay assumptions was you were playing it on a laptop with a trackpad, meaning we um, you know, made all of our timing based on your fingers being in this position. So you can't just like add on that kind of control as an afterthought. You know, you really have to optimize gameplay for one thing or another. It just it it really affects playtesting down the line. So um, you know. They've been trying to like get mobile developers to use third-party joy- you know, joystick products forever. I remember at GDC a few years ago where they were, you know, sending out these free dongles for iPhone out of the hopes that people would start adopting it. It just never catches on. I think if Apple were to put out an official one, um, like saying, okay, these are the buttons that you have. This ah. is what the standard look of it is. And even allow third-party people to ship them. I think that would work. But it's it's not going to really solve it in the meantime. The 200 uh, meg limit is the real problem. So um, you know, we were all watching the keynote. And, you know, Apple was talking out their games. And I was kind of worried because it, it seemed like it was more pleasant distraction games that they were putting out. But I'm like, you know, that's fine. You know, this thing has a lot of built-in memory and we'll be able to, um, you know, we'll be able to ship my game for it. And, you know, then the specs get out and we start looking into it. And, you know, the, the maximum size of your uploadable binary that you send um, can be 200 megs and then it can stream a total of two gigs. And, 
you know, all respect to the the Apple reporting community, but uh, you know, I've read all the reporting. And I think there's some, I think there's some stuff that we're missing because it's largely not game developers working on this. I was wondering about if you can break that down a little bit because I don't know what the size of my, I, I, I couldn't tell you what Revolution sixty size is. I have it on my phone, and I never looked at it because I've got X gigs for I got a th- or sixty four gig phone. So and I don't fill it up, and I've got I. A photo cloud library or a iCloud photo library turned on. So I'm not I'm not aware of the size of assets. I know they can be huge. My concern as a uh, non-developer, as uh, mm-hmm. someone on the like website and having run, you know, my my app that I had, the magazine app, we had to push very small amounts of data, but we were even conscious there about keeping those, you know, small because we didn't want to push 700 meg files like the New Yorker was. We wanted to push, you know, 10 meg files to um, people, but. I, I worry about the bandwidth side. So I know you're worried about the asset side. I want to talk about that. I'd be worried about the, well, let's say I had, you know, a uh, uh, 25 megabit per second connection, which is not, you know, it's not average, but it's only a little bit above average. If I've got a 200 meg game and it's got uh, gigabytes of assets, even if it could have two gigs of assets, uh, that's a lot of time for download. And if I'm on a capped service, which many of them now are, uh, I'm going to start paying overage fees if I play a lot of games and it's streaming a lot of data. So that's the, that's the, download side like the time the uh, you know the the effort all that kind of thing on the development side this sounds like a pretty severe limit and that's really it's very opaque to me even as a you know a user a kind of quasi programmer i have no idea what those limits mean serenity did a really good thing for imore where she like dug through and explained it like so she she broke out the the developer yeah and she looked at the developer documentation but then explained it in a way that you know non-developers can be like oh okay that's how that works. I think this is one of these situations where looking beyond the documentation, what a functional game dev pipeline is, is, is very helpful for understanding the whole picture here. So let me be clear. If you are developing a game with Apple's tools, with Xcode, yeah. yes, you can. this is going to be a fine solution for you. It's not going to be a problem. The bigger problem is going to be if um, you were using Unity or Unreal. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, Apple's tools try to like lock you into their their infrastructure, right? Um, you know, but the the truth is, if you're making 3D games, Apple's you know tools are baby talk compared to the rest of the industry. Like, let me give you an example. At last year's State of the Union. Um, speech like they were really premiering this really big feature where you could generate a normal map, which is something that kind of fakes depth in 3D by like generating it from a from a texture file, and everybody is like, "Ooh, ah, that's so amazing! We have had that technology for a decade <laughs> over in the Unreal <laughs> side of it, and that is how far behind Apple is." So, and that's just like a basic material function. If you're talking about you know, FBX imports or like bone pipelines, like all this stuff, like the really advanced stuff that you're making games at, you just simply can't do it on iOS. So this is the practical consideration of how how Apple's tools and Apple TV are going to shake out. If you want to make a pleasant distraction game like Harmonix chose to do, using Apple's tools natively yeah, this is going to be fine. You can stream that stuff in there, Glenn. As you said, the bandwidth is going to be a problem. But if you're trying to make something more serious with Unity, with Unreal, um, you know, I can barely package 
a game with nothing in it in the Unreal Engine and just the basic frameworks to like download more content, if I chose to go through there and code all that natively to, to make that work with Unreal, I can barely get that under 200 in the first place if I chose to do that. Right. So you're just tremendously, like this is a huge barrier. And this is, this is really the big point that I, I would love consumers out there to think about. Um, and I say this with all respect to Apple because they've been good partners to us at our company. But look, you have a choice here. If you want to bet really big on Apple and develop a really big game, you need to use their tools. And yes, you can bring it to Apple TV, but you don't have a product at that point that you can take to other platforms, right? Like you can't bring it to PC, really. You can't bring it to Nintendo. You can't bring it to PS4. You're really locked into Apple's platform if you choose to use their tools, which means you're betting very heavily that Apple is going to feature you, that, you know, Apple consumers are going to work with your your monetizing strategy, which all too often tends to go for, you know, in-app purchases and like this roulette card upgrade system that just encourages people to keep buying into it. Um, if you are making a wider bet, like a lot of game developers do, like Destiny does, Grand Theft Auto, Metal Gear, if you're making that bigger bet of, I'm going to develop this with proprietary tools, um, you know, an engine like Unreal, like, um, you know, and like um, Unity, and port it to more systems, it's just not really going to work out super well for you, right? Well, like, and, you can, yeah, go well, ahead, Just looking at it, I was wondering, like, just the way Apple's broken it down, it seems to lend itself either to games that are relatively straightforward. I mean, 200 megs is both a lot and not very much at all, but also that level approach. It's an in-app purchase approach because it's, okay, I'm in level one, I'm going to level two, it'll stream assets, it can even prefetch uh, assets and cache some of them. But in level two, I only need some, I don't need the same assets as in level one. I've got a whole new set and then I buy level three and I buy level four. So it has it feels like it lends itself to a certain kind of, as opposed to a environmental or world building thing like you've done where you're moving. I mean, I realize there's bits and pieces that you go through that you don't need every asset and every piece of the game as it works, but it's a different, uh, it's, it seems to be structured around that in-app purchase level approach in which there are discrete things that can be used in discrete places. And so that lets the developer kind of focus within those limits as apart from also the, I mean, the issue you're talking about is bigger, of course, uh, too, is not just, forcing people to make a certain kind of game, but the fact, I mean, could, could Unreal and um, uh, uh, Unity, could they develop an approach that would let you pump stuff out into this environment without having to do the same kind of asset management? Or is it too deeply encoded in how you develop the game in those environments? It couldn't chunk up those assets to be Apple TV compliant. I, that is a great question, Glenn. And I absolutely expect Unreal to bring something to market relatively quickly that will let me, um, you know, like stream that stuff in there bit by bit. They did this with the in-app purchase API. They've, they've done it regularly, like where engineers at Epic will update it. So Glenn, yeah, you were the, you're the perfect person to be talking to this about this too today, because you had the same experience at the magazine where you would develop it, you would update it, and Apple would put out a new version of iOS every single year, like clockwork, and it would break it, right? To the point where you finally decided to go um, with some more generic tools at the end, correct? Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. Yeah. Because the, so, co the cost of yeah. updating is so high on, right. on a specific platform because it's changing every year. So what I need for you to imagine is, 
let's say you're investing, your Rev60 was only half a million dollars. Um, let's say a bigger bet, like a one or two million dollar game, which is very modest. Yeah, that's going to have a one or two year development mm -hmm. cycle. So let's say you're going through, you develop it. And it's not just that every single year when Apple puts out the new version of iOS, it breaks it. You are also waiting for Epic engineers to come through and update their tools and then your team has to do it. So it's two different layers of indirection oh there, right? God. Like yeah. Apple is breaking it, then Epic is breaking it, and then you're fixing it. So, so you have to have a fast will, dev cycle. Even if you're not using the third, even if you're using Apple's own tools, you're pointing out something right. I should be well aware of. You're right. Is that you have to use yeah. a, a very fast dev cycle to stay on top of everything that's going to be shipping with that. And especially Apple TV will probably have profound changes after it's been in the market in a, for a year and tvOS is refined. Right. So, you know, it's just... Again, like this is going to be a perfect game market for things like Crossy Road, right? Like that is, that is perfect. You know, Pac-Man 256, that's going to work out well. But for, you know, anyone looking to like push iOS to the next level to get to more professional games, like this was my hope with TV OS. You know, this was my really, I, I want Apple to be a more mature platform. I want to see it compete with, you know, some of these other games because it is, you know, Apple has accidentally found itself as probably the most important game dev company in the entire world. <laughs> Fascinating. And, and purely by accident, you know, I want there to be a market for games that bet big and give people mature experiences like Revolution 60. But this just isn't it. It's a big disappointment. It's this is really fascinating. All right, let me ask you one last question, though, is uh, a test unit. So there was a lottery. You applied as a developer to get a test Apple TV before they ship in uh, several weeks. And uh, I saw a lot of disappointed devs. Should Apple have had a pipeline available to say, like, we have, you know, 10,000 of these to people who have, you know, who are been active devs? So it's not people who registered, paid the money, and, um, and won an Apple TV for themselves early. It's like they have, maybe there was a test, you had to have an app out or whatever. But should they have made more test units available for purchase at this stage? I think at this point, Glenn, anyone that works at Apple is just used to the injustice that's associated <laughs> with being a oh, developer. So like sometimes, yes. sometimes I will talk to developers Sing and they'll it, be like, oh, can you believe Apple <laughs> Apple treated us unfairly? And I look at them and I'll be like, oh, you must be oh, new here. I'm, I'm <laughs> crying. You're right. I was, I was trying to ask the question in all fairness, but you're, you're totally right. Oh, like, my gosh. You know, um, could they have done it better? Always the answer is yes. Always the answer is yes. <laughs> oh, so, my gosh. Yeah, I just didn't even cast him for the lottery. I'm like, you know what? We're going to concentrate on our PC release. And when these uh, bugs are shaken out in six months, we'll take a look at it. But uh, you know what? I just, uh, I just, uh, I'm going to go on vacation. And you guys can work with Apple. You guys can sort have a good time. And I'm uh, out. I well, got no problems. Yeah. Appreciate your frankness and your honesty and the, and the insight as an actual game development company head. So thank you. Thanks, Brianna. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So Susie, the one thing we didn't talk about with Brianna, we realized this after the fact, was um, we didn't talk about the um, device size. There's a 32 gigabyte and 64 gigabyte Apple TV you could purchase. 50 buck price point difference, 149 or 199 But given that we know you can't load like a two gigabyte game it has to stream resources on demand and you can't ostensibly download a movie to the device and say stay on the device 
Why should you pick one or the other? This is the thing that's mystifying me. I have no idea. I need to ask Apple this, and they probably won't tell me. But maybe they will because they're the ones who decided to sell two sizes, and the press release doesn't really explain. The website doesn't really explain. They didn't really... I, I don't think they explained it at the keynote I, unless I missed it because I, I was too it. busy typing. I've been reading developer documents because I wanted to understand that whole thing that uh, we were talking about with Brianna about mm-hmm. like asset size and so forth. And from what I can tell, I think there is uh, the it, 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 more gigabytes gives you more mauve. No, I'm just kidding. More gigabytes. <laughs> it's much prettier if you have more gigabytes. Um, it's it's 95% profit to Apple probably. Well, probably 90%. Uh, it's but 50 the, bucks. So, I mean. It's significant. The only thing I can tell is, so it's uh, the Apple TV or TVOS is going to do really uh, clever cash management. It'll even be able to do stuff like fetch ahead. We were talking about that a little bit. So if you're playing a game or using any kind of app that has to do asset loading, uh, you can tag things in all these different ways. And so it'll you can do some prefetching and say, okay, the user isn't there yet, but I need asset whatever. And there's some way you you know, communicate with TVOS about this. So conceivably, uh, some of it is just to have storage on hand. You know, you could have 10 games and each of them could have two gigs of assets. You don't know that they're going to stay there or not. And when you start streaming movies, ostensibly, if you're, you know, streaming a five gig film, it's going to want to download and store the whole thing. You know, it'll start playing and then stream and store the rest. So it's not um, only uh, depending on the live connection. And the current one does that. It'll buffer as much as it can up to, you know, memory size that's available even though it doesn't have persistent storage. So my thinking is that if you have 64 gigs and you do a lot of apps, and especially apps that load a lot of assets, um, that's what it's about. Uh, somebody, I forget, I think it was Jason Snell, I heard him talking about this. He thought it would be, you know, if even though the apps are 200 megs, you could wind up with, what if you had 20 200 meg apps? Um, you know, that can wind up consuming a fair amount of space. And um, so you could hit the you could hit a wall where, you have a bunch of sophisticated apps and they have assets and you're doing video and it's constantly purging your cache with a 32 gig unit. But if you had 64 gigs, your games would remain playable. You put a game down, you come back to it in two days and it hasn't purged those assets or actually still cached. So that is my guess. But who knows? Yeah, they said it does handoff. So maybe it's like, especially for games, if you pause something on your iPad, you want to be able to pick it up on your Apple TV without having to wait a few minutes for it to, oh. you know, kind of catch up. Maybe it's stream so maybe assets. It, maybe it kind of starts, maybe if it like detects your, your iPhone within Bluetooth range and, you know, how a handoff kind of works, like the, the devices sort of sniff each other out and then like offer to hand off the thing for you. Like you don't, you don't tell it like, hey, hand this off to my iPhone. Like it, it's sort of says like handoff and you're like yes yes handoff please so um so maybe that's it i know the fire tv kind of preloads they preload everything in your watch list in your amazon watch list and it preloads a few things that it you know a few of its suggestions that its algorithms think that you might be likely to watch and that's so when you press play on something it starts playing immediately it's freaky fast it's like you notice it you notice how fast it is it loads the first part or does it load the whole thing yeah, so if you have a, a, a movie in your in your playlist, uh, it, I you know it, it must just pre-buffer. I don't know how much how much it grabs, but it starts so fast because it's it's just kind of like it's guessing what you want to play and kind of you know setting it up ahead of time. 
So maybe the maybe Apple storage would do that. But I mean, I feel like if that was their plan, they would have told us about it. Like, look, look how fast it loads and done, you know, some kind of demo. Like, okay, well, let's show side by side the Apple TV 3, whatever, uh, the one that ships now yeah. for $69. And then let's press play, you know, at the same time on both of these remotes and watch on the new Apple TV, your movie starts playing in like half a second and on the other one it kind of spins for a while because that's the I mean I have all the set top box at home and the Apple TV is it's the one I use the most but it's also the slowest by far well I uh I wonder what this does to bandwidth use as I was talking about with Brianna like I'm uh I'm really conscious of how especially in America particularly uh some other countries where there's higher uh, throughput connections that cost less and there are no caps or the caps are vastly higher it's not a big deal. In America, we are constantly um, managing uh, what we're doing for data transfer because we can be uh, capped in some markets. You just run out. They're like, okay, that's it. Uh, you can be charged, you know. And I was just doing some research on IP cameras. And, you know, the, the Nest camera, mm-hmm. it, has, it does 1080p. If you have one camera in your house and you just have it set to default, it will upload from between about 200 to 400 gigabytes a month. Oh, my God. Uh-huh. It uses from 400 and something kilobits per second to 1.2 megabits per second at any given time. Wow. And I've got three megs up right now because I've got this Comcast connection I want to get rid of. I have fiber out my window. I'm looking at the fiber. <laughs> CenturyLink, come plug it in. That is your white whale. Uh, my neighbors have it, not in the same block face, but like people nearby. So at some point soon, I will hopefully have gigabit Ethernet and I, or internet, and I'll be delighted. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but uh, yeah, that's the that's the thing that I think isn't thought about. So Apple TV is going to download a lot of stuff, and then it's going to be purging and downloading it again. So you know, I I don't know. I mean, you know, a lot of places uh, like I think Comcast is going to start charging over I think like three hundred gigabytes a month, something like that. So no. it's it's possible to consume that uh, between uploads and downloads pretty fast uh, with some kinds of behavior, and with and especially if you're using like I do hosted online backups with uh, I use CrashPlan. There's Backblaze and there's a bunch of others. That is an easy way to consume that as well. So. I shouldn't uh, have to choose between online backups and watching tons of movies. I know, I know. Well, we should, you know, it's basically bandwidth. Comcast essentially has admitted it. I mean, all the carriers now kind of admit it. They're like, well, it's not really a scarce resource. We just want to charge more for it. It's <laughs> it's margin. It's not, and they could they could expand their market and let people pay a little bit more and give them a ton more. But scarcity is a model to to boost margins because we don't have competition. If you have competition, margins are reduced because scarce artificial scarcity. <laughs> Disappears. Hi, I'm Karl Marx, and I'm here for American Express to tell you about economies. But anyway, uh, one more thing we want to talk about with the Apple TV, because I know this affects you, me, a little bit less. I'm not using the port. The audio out port is gone on the Apple TV, and uh, um, some of our commenters think we're idiots (laughs) for talking about it. They're really, uh, they're really all over us. Some of them are angry about it. You shouldn't be using audio out. It's what's wrong with you? And others are like, Oh my God, thank you for writing an article. About this, I've had two dozen between Twitter and email and online comments to other articles, at least two dozen people saying, I use audio out. Yes, I have HDMI. What am I going to do if I get a new Apple TV? So I wrote an article about this for you with uh, several suggestions. Uh, and so what's your what's your plan? Because you use audio out now for specific – do you use it with – is it – are you using it as an AirPlay target or do you do Apple TV stuff that then you take the audio from Apple TV and you want to push it to a stereo? A little bit of both. I mostly watch Apple TV just through the HDMI connection to my TV and I watch the shows and most movies on my TV speakers. 
every once in a while, if we're watching something like Top Gun or, you know, something where you mm-hmm. really want like crazy sound, then I will turn on the TV, or turn on the stereo, mute the TV so you don't have like the TV and the stereo at once because that kind of bothers me. Um, and then watch, you know, listen to it through the stereo while I'm watching on the TV. But that's rare. Um, so I do use it a lot, though, as an AirPlay target. I have the Apple TV. I have a Toslink cable going into my receiver, which was a really great receiver when I mm-hmm. bought it. I mean, it was like it's a digital Sony. It's really great. But and it's it, more than like five years old, right? Oh, yeah. It's yeah, like so, 14 years old. Oh, but it's oh like, wow. It has digital. In, that's great. So it was It was pretty, one it was of the first then. digital ones. Like it yeah. was really top of the line when we bought it. And you know, it still works fine. Good it's the only thing from time. my like old stereo that I still use. Like this, we don't use the disc changer anymore. This is what our angry commenters don't, I think don't accept. This is the thing I'll say, like as a reporter, as someone who writes, especially for you, Macworld listeners, we know that people are good shepherds of equipment. And some people have stuff that's, 5, 10, 15, 20 years old. We get My people... dad's receiver is like older than I am. And why and why not? I had a receiver, it was an affordable uh like quasi digital one I think that I had for like 10 plus years and it was only 3 or 4 years ago we moved from a 720p tiny early generation HDTV set. We finally got a 1080p set that was a little bit bigger because of failing eyes. And at that point I'm like, "All right, now it's time to buy a new receiver because I do want to do HDMI switching. I don't need to have all these extra cables and weird and an external whatever and use the TV for switching. It's a hassle." So then I upgraded, but I, you know, I got my money out of a $300 receiver for a decade. I bought a $300 $350 Yamaha that has 5.1 surround. It has, uh, it's an airplay destination itself. It has yeah. HDMI switching and I'm like, it has like six AV, you know, uh, analog ports. I'm like, I don't, if, if this doesn't die and it's Yamaha to last a long time, I could be using this in 20 years. I and mean, like, I could probably upgrade the receiver. Like that isn't a total deal breaker. It's just like, if I'm going to upgrade something, I want it to be because I want to upgrade it, not because like something, you know, some decision that Apple made like broke my, you know, workflow. <laughs> you, there's a new $150 device that means you need to spend $2,000 on your AV system. Right? Yeah. Instead so, pay 40 bucks for an HDMI splitter or 30 bucks even. Yeah. So the, you know, we, you found a bunch of different workarounds of those that I'm probably leaning towards just keeping the old Apple TV just as an AirPlay destination. Yeah. Um, cause I don't really do those things at the same time. Right. So, and I just like having the, the music from my stuff playing on my stereo without the TV on, like my TV's on too much. I have a little kid in the house you know, it's it's fine to just have it on running the screensaver, but if, if it doesn't need to be on, it doesn't need to be on. And that's that was nice. my thing is I want to be able, yeah, is I want to use it without having to worry about it being on. Or I could flip it on, you do your thing, and then you turn it off, but I'm really only, I don't have to have the TV on to use it, even if I'm using the TV as like the interface, as the uh, UI for a moment. That's cool. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I think what'll happen, I think for someone like you, my guess is, and and maybe for me when I say I could use this receiver for 20 years, it's true, but at some point there'll be 4K sets and that'll become common. And my 1080p set, I'll be like, well, 10 years from now, maybe, if I'm lucky, uh, just like we got 10 years out of the first one, I'll say, well, you know, 4K sort of standard. Everyone's using, you know, Blu-ray HD plus or whatever the next thing is and uh or you know ultra high definition is now here maybe in 10 years i'll go like all right maybe it's time we'll get the new set and i'll get the only receiver it does hdmi but it doesn't do 4k HD. all right well maybe it's time to do that and it does hd or 802.11 ad you know which is seven gigabit per second short range uh networking that's still not quite out there but that's going to be big in av for uh doing hdmi over the air 
Um, so, you know, maybe in 10 years, I'm like, all right, now it's time to upgrade. Everything worked for a while, but now, okay, I'm ready for the next thing. Well, you uh, know, the other reason that might make this less of a big deal than it is now is because now the the interface on my Apple TV is mostly about <clears throat> watching TV. So if I'm watching TV, I have my TV on and I can use, you know, the Apple TV's interface. But the new Apple TV will have apps for everything. I mean, they showed yeah. like some games and they showed some shopping apps, which I think look ridiculous. But so all of the apps that I'm using now on my phone to send music to my Apple TV will more than likely also exist right on my TV. So I might kind of trend towards um, using the TV interface to do those tasks and then it won't bother me that the TV's on. But I mean, right now I'm totally happy just sending, I send stuff from my Mac, from my iPad, from my iPhone, control it with my Apple Watch and it all just plays over my stereo. So I, no, yeah, I'll probably end points. up keeping both. It's interesting. I think about that as this sort of is moving us into an always-on TV interface where I've uh, – I mean, my wife and I have resisted having – I mean, we have a cabinet. We close the doors. Our TV screen is not visible except when we're doing something with it, which is relatively rare between the kids and us. You know, it might be uh, an hour or two a day, sometimes zero hours a day, so it's just not on. Um, and if Apple TV is moving us, the new one is moving us to an always-available video interface, um, including having those fancy – backgrounds they showed so when it's not in use it'll be showing pretty pictures and uh if a guy a guy I worked for years ago he started a company between being involved in multi-billion dollar companies he started this company that uh was for plasma tv sets where he licensed art from um, uh, museums and they prepped it so you could have gorgeous art showing up on your big tv so you didn't have a big black rectangle hanging there when it wasn't in use oh, and yeah. to prevent burn-in but it was like they did super high resolution um, scans. So you're getting art from around the world licensed from all these institutions. And I sort of feel like Apple's like, look, we can have these beautiful animations of like, whatever. And I'm like, well, I don't actually want anything. I want to close the doors. I want, you know, just yeah. have the TV disappear. Give me a, actually what the TV should do is it should show the paint color of what's behind it. <laughs> the wall behind it. Oh yeah. my gosh. Um, <laughs> let's see. So what else we got uh, this week is the last thing I think we should talk about just a little bit is the iPad Pro. Cause I think we're going to run it a and the weeks to come, we won't come back to this because it'll it'll be out. But uh, we'll talk about it in a different way. But uh, I have a story that went up on Tuesday when recording this uh, about uh, the iPad Pro. I was trying to figure out who it was for because it seems to me it's a relatively small market. The way Apple was advertising it or marketing, it, even though they showed uh, Adobe products and Microsoft products and drawing things, I still felt like I wasn't sure who would be a business person who would want this instead of a laptop the, the, with what they were showing. And the art, artist market and the illustrator and so forth market is relatively small. And Moltz and I were talking about this last week, and I've been listening to podcasts and reading other people's thoughts about it. And I, I've been wondering, is the iPad Pro, like it's a real product in its own right. It's not the evolution of a laptop. It's not like the new netbook, right? Um, it's a high-end but not very expensive device that will appeal to a subset of people. But I feel like it's also – testing what people want at that edge between what a laptop is and does and its power and what a tablet is. And it's come like in Microsoft's original path was we'll make one operating system that does both. Everyone will love that. Bah! You know, and then eventually they moved to the surface three, which does run windows or can run windows, but it um, it's its own thing. And it has a lot of people love the Surface 3 because it has fewer compromises. It actually has evolved into something that is its own thing. And I feel like Apple would not take the Microsoft, hey, we don't need iOS and OS 10 path. We're going to have one OS. 
uh, and I don't think I don't think they'll do that at all. But I, and I also don't think they're going to come up with a a laptop that's got tablet features like a touchscreen. But I think they could wind up with uh, using ARM-based processors for their low-end laptops. It's been talked about for a while, and they would be very close to tablet specs, and then the tablets will be very close to laptop specs, but there'll be a line between them. I was wondering what you th what you thought about this. Like, who do you, you know, you've got to see the iPad Pro in person. Do you feel like there's, like, this is a test Apple's making, or there's a, you immediately said, oh yeah, there's a market for this, and it may not be huge, but it makes sense, or, or other ideas? I mean, it's, it could be kind of a marketing thing, too. I mean, this is very cynical, but it could be trying to see, like, who will pay $1,000 for an iPad. Um, I don't think we've had any iPads crack the thousand dollar mark before. I'd have to go back and double check. Did, well, but you could buy. I, th uh, I this think one you starts could buy at eight hundred, but again, it's like it's a thirty-two gigabyte thing with no cellular option available. And if you want cellular at all, you have to get a hundred and twenty-eight gigabyte uh, iPad I Pro, and that it's going to cost you over a thousand dollars. But I think was the top line was it with a was it without 920? the keyboard without the pencil? I thought just... it was a thousand twenty-nine at some point if you got the cellular option of one of the uh, iPads. Maybe I'm wrong. It was only nine twenty-nine. Um, yeah, I mean, once you do it, right, you're up to like fourteen hundred bucks, right? If you do all the or yeah. thirteen hundred dollars with all the stuff together, so expensive. Although cheap in terms of what it does, like I know artists who are use the Cintiq uh, from Wacom uh, as a drawing tablet, and and some of them actually, some people said, "Oh, I use an iPad today, and it's not a great tool, but I can't afford the equivalent Cintiq." But the going from a current iPad to one like this is something they will budget for and move to because the equivalent Cintiq is more expensive and less featured. It's not, I mean, it's not a one-to-one -one comparison what they do, but they're all salivating at this a little bit because it might answer, it might allow them to do multiple things on a single device as opposed to having to have the, the expensive uh, drawing tablet, uh, video drawing tablet, and have other equipment as well. Yeah, I mean, there's already some advanced drawing yeah. tools that don't require the iPad Pro. That's the other thing. The pencil only works with the iPad Pro. Right. Um, so, but I mean, Adobe has its ink stylus that's very advanced. It's pressure sensitive. Um, you know, it was made for, for graphics professionals, the same kind of people who would use a Cintiq or this, um, iPad pro and it works with the iPad air too. I think it works with, you know, a few iPads down. I think it, anyone that has Bluetooth 4.0, um, I believe is supported and it's linked to your creative cloud account. You can store assets like inside the pen. And then if you move to a different machine, all your assets come with you. And oh, that's so, cool. <laughs> yeah. Like that. So it's not like Apple's thing is the only thing in town. Like they didn't, they didn't invent any of this. Um, so yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how well it sells. Um, Apple doesn't like to break out the results per model, but they are making a big push as the iPad is this work machine with the IBM partnership and they're, they're, producing some some apps that are that are very focused on one on one job you know they have some for flight attendants and some for doctors and some for people who do you know inventory and warehouses and stuff so anything that you would use like a, a clipboard full of paper before they want to replace all that with an iPad so not just you know like oh, I send my email with an iPad and I do my powerpoints and my TPS reports like they want <laughs> they want all kinds of jobs to be to be going to iPads so I guess it makes sense to have a whole range of sizes but I mean I really like my iPad mini because <laughs> um, I you know it gives me the same almost everything that the other guys can do but for for a much less much lower price. Well, what I've been hearing from some people on the IT side is that enterprise really wants a uh, laptop 
uh, not sorry, a tablet like this that is laptop-y without being a laptop. So the operating system isn't as important to them as having access to, say, the Microsoft app. So where I may be totally off base on this is the drawing stuff and the pressure sensitivity, that's almost like an extra because you got to pay for the pencil as an extra thing. They put effort into it. You know, it's going to be some, I don't know, is it $100 of the, the cost? $200 the cost is because they put the extra sensitivity in. It, it's expensive, but it also even seems to me cheap relative to how big it is um, and and the, the pressure sensitivity that they built into the actual device that uh, that the pencil works with, that it's more, I mean, it's not just the pencil, right? It's not a iPad plus a sophisticated drawing tool. It's the iPad itself has like per pixel uh, um, sensors that go along with it. So at some level, it's both, you know, it's, it's expensive, but it's also cheap given what they put in there. And I'm trying to, but so I guess what I was thinking is why are they focusing so much attention on the pressure sensitive part? Why does that seem like a big deal? And I may be missing the obvious is that every doctor, uh, every nurse, every, um, you know, IT person, a lot of people who do or business travelers who they already have their apps. I mean, IBM has been releasing hundreds of apps in that partnership with Apple for the enterprise. I and think, yeah, a few dozen so far. Is a few do- well, they've got, oh, they have hundreds slated. I mean, it's a huge yeah, roadmap, I they're thought. they're cranking them out pretty fast. Yeah, so, okay, so they've got dozens out. But so those, if those are a success, uh, maybe this is the thing, is maybe the iPad Pro is the thing that drumbeat from IBM side is we keep hearing people want a bigger one because they want it with a keyboard that's integrated because they like the Surface and they want to buy a Mac. I mean, they want to buy an Apple device. They want to buy an iOS device. You don't have the thing they want. They're getting the Surface because it's bigger and it's got a keyboard and blah, blah, blah. And Apple finally says, all right, you know, there's market demand. There's a place in our matrix for this between laptop and Air, iPod, uh, iPad Air 2 um, or 4, whatever they had, a 4? iPad Air 4. I can't keep track. It's the iPad. What, what's the iPad now? iPad Air 2, right? The iPad Air 2. Jeez. They're not upgrading that at this time. There's and an they iPad... did announce an iPad Mini 4, Four which right. does okay. the multitasking things oh, that Lord. only the iPad Air could, you know, iPad Air 2 could do before. Oh, right. So, so it's the, all synced up. There the is a Mini version. that will okay. do all the cool stuff. It but, doesn't work with the pencil. Only the Pro works with the pencil. But so maybe this is something I was thinking, can they, can they sell hundreds of thousands of this? Is it useful to them to test the market? Even Next it, year's will have 3D touch. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the MacBook Air, when it first came out, the MacBook Air, I mean, I was really dubious about it because it was so underpowered. And the iPad Pro is not underpowered. It seems like a great device. Like, like I feel like this has some of the same purpose as the original MacBook Air or even the original iPad, but it's so much more mature. And this is where I would be totally delighted if I'm off base and it turns out this is like a 10 million unit a year seller. This is the thing that everyone was waiting for Apple to make was the thing that was not running OS 10 was laptop like in specs, but was something you could carry around in one hand and, um, you know, use as a touchscreen or flip the keyboard out when you need to. Maybe this is the versatile device without the compromises of trying to integrate desktop and uh, mobile features into one operating system. Maybe this is it. I don't know. Yeah. I thought how your point that you made in your article, which we're going to link to, was really good that it's just different use cases. You know, like Apple knows that there's only so many like things that that they can make for you, but everyone's going to use them a little bit differently. And some people might really want a thing with a keyboard that's attached all the time. Some people might only need a keyboard on Fridays. So, um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a much more full lineup than before because of the different sizes. You have a few different sizes of computers. Now you have a few different sizes of iPads. 
We even have different sizes of iPhones. So it, it makes sense, but it's going to be really interesting to see if this is enough to reverse the iPad slump or if the yeah. iPad Pro will kind of mature after another couple of revisions. Yeah, I feel like Apple is working hard on this. Like this is like they, you know, they're not skating on everything else, but this is so different. This is this is the thing where in the in the future people will say Apple did another revolution. They came out with the iPad Pro and at the time people are like, "Eh, meh." <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the first iPad, people were like, it's just a really big iPod Touch. Yeah. It's like, yeah, and then later it is it's a smart like, guy, but what, what are we going to do with it is the cool thing. Yeah, because it's always later that the revolution is decided, right? So later, pundits in three years, not Mac world pundits, of course, will be saying things <laughs> like, like, oh, well, just like the iPad, which they said was terrible at the time, the iPad Pro, and why can't they come out with another iPad Pro? So... Yeah. That's we will look forward to that. So, folks, uh, when you hear this, you get get iOS nine. Start checking stuff out. iPhones will be shipping. When did iPhone uh, ship? I've lost track of the date. Friday the twenty fifth. All right. Oh, the twenty fifth. Right. So we'll be talking about those as those get closer. I'll be uh, on vacation, so I get to go pick mine up at the the mall at Short Hills, which is one of the finest malls in suburban New Jersey. Woohoo! I think it's that's, a really nice mall. <laughs> I did not buy a new phone because I can't. I don't need. I don't need three D touch. We'll talk about that in the future. I don't need 3D Touch enough. I don't need 3D Touch in the bigger camera. I have an iPhone 6, and it's good enough for me. It was good enough for my grandpa. It's good enough for me, the <laughs> iPhone 6. We had a time machine accident. That's how that worked out. Well, that's, that's enough of my nonsense. Susie Oaks, executive editor <laughs> of Macworld. Great to talk to you again. Yes, thank you. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. All my nonsense. And thanks again to Brianna Wu <laughs> for joining us. I'll talk about Apple TV. And this has been the Macworld Podcast, episode 474 for September 16th. 2015. I have been and remain still to this day. Glenn Fleischman, senior contributor to Macworld, and we'll look forward to hearing from you. Email us at podcast at macworld.com. Find us on Twitter at Macworld or post comments at macworld.com for this podcast post, and we will like to hear your questions, what you want to talk about, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody.